All right, we are uh, not we're not getting back to John yet. We've been in a study of the book of John, but we're in a kind of a Christmas New Year's break. And I wanted to bring up something that I think is just uh, important for us, just a reminder for us. It's something you probably already know. I'm not going to tell you something you haven't heard in a long time, uh, it, but it's important for us to remind ourselves of certain things. And as I get to that, one of the things that hit me um, a while back, somebody was mentioning, you know, different churches have different styles and different churches have different ways of doing things. I talked, I talked to a pastor one time and I was talking to him and I was saying, for your, for your sermon, you know, how do you do it? How long is it? And he goes, I try to stay under 20 minutes. And I was like, oh, man, sometimes I'm not out of my introduction yet when, I, when we hit. And, and then I thought, oh, you know, because sometimes I do run a little long, some people might say. And uh, I noticed last week, it was the day after Christmas, and I had a shorter sermon. And I had two different people who worked with children come and thank you for being quick. And I was like, ooh, this may be more of a problem than I realize. Um, and it's probably not going to change anything, but I'm thinking about it, just so you know that. Because uh, somebody, I'm not going to say who, somebody from this church sent this to me in an email. There's a fine line between a long, drown-out sermon and a hostage situation. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, I want to talk about uh, the rest of the story, I said Acts 29. Now, you know there's no Acts 29. Acts is, the book of Acts is, is chapters 1 through 28. And, and, it, and it's, it's the story of the early church. Acts 29 is us. It's what the church is doing since that time. And we are in the process right now of writing, in a sense, Acts 29. What happens after the early church? And that's what I want to talk about. Uh, you know, it's New Year's, and we make a lot of resolutions, people. And then, you know, I, I was watching on the, one of those New Year's Eve things, and uh, they were talking to somebody, and there's always the smart Alec when they say, what's your New Year's resolution? I've made a resolution not to make resolutions. <laughs> you know, and you've heard it a million times from people. And I heard that. I was like, ah, why did they put that person on TV? Because we think about it, even if we don't make resolutions, we think about it. It's a new year. What will my life look like in 2022? I mean, this is a huge thing for us after the past couple of years. What does, but, but more importantly, what does God want me to do in 2022? Because as a Christian, we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. If there is a God and he has made himself known through Jesus, his son, and through what he did, and, and now empowers people through the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's really important what God wants me to do for 2022. It's not just something of passing importance. This is ultimate importance. And as Christians, we're supposed to be the people in, in the power of love who are trans, helping people's lives transform. Through Jesus Christ, I understand that we're not doing it, but we are a conduit in a sense. We, we share, we work, we act. We live it out in front of people. Because unfortunately, a lot of people in our, in our culture, in, in our country, have a very negative, and so it's earned at times, let's not, let's not belittle it, a very negative kind of a stereotype of what a Christian is. I mean, my favorite example of this is The Simpsons, right? Ned Flanders, who's supposed to be a Christian. And I just remember years and years ago watching one of The Simpsons shows, and 
Ned and his family come pulling up in, in their car with suitcases packed in it. And Homer says, where have you been? And he says, I was at a Christian camp learning to be more judgmental. And, and, and you know, you think about it. That's what people think. That's what people, we may disagree with it. We may know that that's not exactly the whole story, but that's what people think. And so we have to think about as people who are following Jesus Christ, as a part of the church, as a part of the greater church, and as a part of this church, what are we doing to change that? What are we doing to reach people? You know, and, and we're, we, we do a lot. I, I'm astounded in, in the past year hearing people talk about ways they're ministering to others at work, ways they're ministering to others in their neighborhood, things they're doing on their own, uh, what s- small groups are doing, but also other things we do. Like we did, you know, this, the, the Christmas Arizona trip to the Navajo Reservation and just did some incredible things there. We were involved the day after Christmas in port, ministering to the homeless. We were involved in Angel Tree. Over 50 kids had a Christmas that they weren't going to have, apart from people here getting involved, and uh, their parent, or maybe some of them, both parents are incarcerated, and they're not looking forward to much, and they got Christmas presents that they were not expecting. It's just a lot of things that we're doing. And these things, what's common about these things? They involve, they involve a cost. They involve effort. Sometimes they involve risk. It's not easy. But we don't want to be, we don't want to be the kind of church that says, well, let's just take care of our own. We do want to take care of our own. We do want to be involved and help in the lives of people here who have fallen into the difficult uh, times or difficult issues. We do want to take care of our own, but not exclusively. And so we're going to look at the final words of Jesus to his followers. He's been teaching them for three years. And he's going to tell them, this is the good news. I want to talk about the kingdom with you, how to be the good news. It's like, it's like, it's like graduation day. Except here's the thing. What do they call a graduation? They call it a commencement. And what does that mean? It's not an ending. It's a beginning. Something new has started. And so Jesus, after his resurrection, he gathers his disciples, his Talmudim, the Hebrew tells us, his students. They get together not to reminisce about the old days, but to connect to something new, to start something new. And so it says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So he's teaching them. He's teaching them during this time. He's like, guys, we got one month. Now that you're finally listening to me, right? Now that they finally get it, and he's going to say, let's talk about what's most important. What do I need you to focus on? And what is it? It's the kingdom. It's the kingdom. That idea bringing up there, down here, and creating little places, little pockets, where there are kingdom rules rather rather than than cultural rules, rather than earthly rules. It's run by kingdom rules. These people who are trying to bring up there, down here, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Up there, down here. This going to start this ministry. That's going to focus on the kingdom of God. And how does that start? Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I was thinking about this. No one's ever done this. There's an aspect of this that's very interesting. I was reading a book. It's a, it's a guy named Larry Hurtado, and, and the name of the book is The Destroyer of Gods. And it's a historian looking at the early church and how it changed the world. It's a very interesting book because one of the things he brings up is that in our day, this idea of conversion, is it can stir up controversy, but it's a word we're all familiar with. It's a concept people are familiar with, switching from one faith to another or no faith to faith. Sometimes, some kind of a, almost like we were talking earlier, a wake-up call from God. But in those days, the idea of conversion was not even thought of. It was not imagined. It was not something that happened. The Greco-Roman world was, was polytheistic. This is one of the things Larry Hurtado brings out. You, you, you could believe in one God, and suddenly there's another. You're like, fine, Adam. Add him too. I'll take more. And so you'd add to your, they'd call it a pantheon of gods, a bunch of gods. You might be a farmer. Well, then your number one God's going to be the God that, that, that produces crops and fertility, right? But if somebody else has, has a God that helps animals, well, oh, bring it in. Cool. The more the merrier. As many as you want. Until it was thousands of gods. You just wanted a God that would help you, give you a good crop. You wanted a God who would heal diseases. You wanted a God that would help you make money. And adding an extra God was no problem at all. But the idea that there was an exclusive God, calling men and women from every country, every culture, every language, to bow before him, to follow him, to love him, to be redeemed by him, that did not exist anywhere. You know, even in Israel which they had a kind of an idea of conversion. But the whole point was, if you wanted to become a follower of the one God, of Yahweh, you had to start dressing like them. You had to start observing the rules they observed. You needed to to learn their language. You needed to do everything. And here's the thing, you had to come to them. They were not coming to you. You had to come to them. And so this idea of go is so totally foreign. It is not something that anybody would have thought of. Go out there into the world and tell everybody there's one God and bring them into that one. This has never been done. It's a new idea. And Jesus tells them, you're going to be my witnesses. And then he lists four places. Now, I got a map up here. Sorry to those of you on that side. But this is a map of, of uh, Israel and the surrounding areas, all right? So right in the middle of the uh, orange that's in the middle is Jerusalem. He says, so be a witness to Jerusalem. And they would have been like, sweet. This is where we're at. This is good stuff. And then he says, all of Judea, basically all of, all of the children of Israel. Okay, that's going to be harder. Going to meet some opposition there. And then he makes it even harder. He says, now go to Samaria. And it's like, whoa, Samaritans. Remember how they felt about Samaritans? They hated them. Now, the disciples had seen Jesus lead Samaritans to to himself, to to belief in God. And so they may have been a little more open to that, but they would have recognized how hard this is going to be to deal with people who have fundamental differences than you do. And then he just tops it off and just says, look, just go to the whole world. To the whole world, the uttermost parts of the world. What 
an incredible plan. Be my witnesses. All right? Proclaim the message of the kingdom. And then he mentions this. When he says this, he just says, look, the whole thing. How are they going to get there? Who's going to pay for all of this? And Jesus is like a little fuzzy on the details, right? There's no plan here for fundraisers. You know, there's, there's no, and we're going to start with baking cakes and selling. There's none of that kind of stuff. Get on Etsy. That's a great place, right? He just says to 11 people, go to the whole world. Take on a mission that's never been attempted in history. It never even been conceived of. Go and reach women and men from every land, every language, every culture. Introduce them to the one God. And see the walls begin to be torn down and the human race becoming a family once again. For no other reason than the love of God. No other reason. Now, let's be honest. We've gotten it wrong sometimes, right? We've gotten it wrong sometimes. We've done some things where they missed that part about doing it for the love of God, and it became coercion. That's wrong. We have to understand. We have to see our mistakes. But ultimately, it goes back to here where Jesus is saying, for no other reason than the love of God. That had never been thought of before. I mean, you think about it, this one tiny little spot, this one hill where a carpenter was crucified, a rabbi was crucified, and there's 11 people, 11 men, more people, but 11 men that are following him. And he says, you're going to go, all of you, all the men, all the women, you're going to go. You got no money, you got no connections, you have nothing. Do you understand how absurd this is? How ridiculous that must have sounded, except that it was coming from Jesus. It just is laughable, except for one thing. It happened. It happened. There are a group of believers in India who trace their faith back to Thomas, the disciple, because he went. He went. And so Acts 29 is what happens after this. It's what we're doing. In in the book of Acts, it's interesting because there's always these kind of summary statements that kind of, and we're going to just look at a couple of them uh, real quick. Acts 1.8 is kind of a summary statement where it tells them this. But I want to to tell you another, here's another one. This is from Acts chapter 2. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily. The Lord added to their number, and I want you to see this, daily. This is an important thing because this has the question, who's at work here? And it tells us, the Lord. This is what's important for us to understand because this is God's work. God is at work here because it takes the burden off of us of doing it perfectly. Because let's face it, you know, confession is good for the soul, and I don't do this very often, but let's just say this. How many of you here, I want you to raise your hand. Everybody's like, oh, crap, not this kind of stuff. Raise your hand if there's been a time where you've been like nervous to tell somebody your faith, nervous to share your faith, felt like you don't exactly know what to say in that situation. How many people, right? Great. And the ones with hands down, you're lying. I'm telling you, you're not telling the truth. No, I I can't judge. I'm not going to judge you. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, 
go out into the world and make no mistakes. Isn't that great? Did they make mistakes? Yes, they made lots of mistakes. Do we make mistakes? Yes. We make lots of mistakes. I heard a talk one time. There's a guy, his name is Benjamin Zander. Um, he's, he's very old now, but he, he did some of the early TED Talks, and, and he's a world-renowned conductor. But his, what he does is he, he, he works with young, uh, promising students. That's especially what he does. He started the Boston Youth Orchestra. He helped start the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. But, and, and so what he does is he's very good, and he has people that help him. They spot people with exceptional talent. And then they, you know, they try to get him to start coming to their school and they can work with him and, and private tutoring and everything. And one of the things he said that he noticed over and over and over with these exceptional students is that they, they begin to grasp that they are very good at this. And, and, and so they're exceptional. But they have many times this tremendous fear of making a mistake because what happens? They see these famous people who just play flawlessly and they go, I can't play false. I know I'm gifted, but I can't play falsely. Maybe I'm not as gifted. So they begin to second, second guess themselves. And then that just wreaks havoc on them when they play. Because if they make a mistake in, in a, like a recital or something, they can just go to pieces. And he talked about how sometimes they, they just run off the stage crying or, or different things like that. And so he is very gifted in this. So he would work with them on getting past that. And one of the things he would tell them to do is that whenever they're playing and they make a mistake, pull their hands back. Or if they're playing, and go, fascinating. And then continue playing. And he found that for a lot of them, that resonated. That was fine because, because they would look at it like fascinating. They would acknowledge I made a mistake, but it would suddenly become something I can learn from this. This is so interesting. How did this happen? What did I do? I think we ought to be a church that a lot of times stops and goes, fascinating. We make mistakes. Because if we're not, if we're not making mistakes, we're probably not doing anything. It is what happens when you do stuff. It means we're not trying to go and do new things for God. And God tells us to go. He tells us to go. But he tells us, it's his work. You know, this is a time in our culture, in our country, that can be very fearful. A lot of stuff going on that upsets us and worries us. A lot of stuff that makes us fear for the future. Now, I read, I mentioned this the other day, I read an article, a guy was saying, this could be the doom of the church. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't bet on that. I wouldn't bet on that. Right? It might be the doom of how we do church or something like that or something. I don't know. It might change things, but it's not the end of the church because God is the one who does the work. And in the past 200 years, I mean, this time we are alive in right now is one of the most exciting times. God is doing incredible things. The problem is the incredible things that God is doing aren't the things that anyone's telling us about. They don't get clicks, right? There's a, there, there, there's a, uh, you know, if the, if the headline said that there is this incredible revival happening in Iran, people are like, whatever, and they just go on. But for us, this is an incredible thing. In one of the most repressive against Christian nations in the world, there is a revival going on. It's one of the fastest growing areas in the world now for Christianity. Iran. 
it has, Christianity has swept through Africa. I mean, there's a long, it's Africa's this giant continent. I know there's a long way to go. But it's amazing the inroads that have been made in Africa and South America. In the last 60 years, China has seen an unprecedented revival, going from 1 to 2 million to 100 million in the space of 40 years under a communist regime. That's unbelievable. That's a miracle. Nobody dreamed that. So God is doing incredible things. It, it, it's an incredible, you know, I love this history stuff. You guys know I talk about it all the time, and that's why some of these sermons become hostage scenes rather than, um, <clears throat> right? But, but even this year, you know, one of the things that's been that the Old Testament gets, gets criticized for is that the, the, the Egyptian rulers the Old Testament mentions, we can't figure out their names in Egypt. Like, they don't correlate. Now, it's a pretty easy thing is what's happening is different rulers had had more than one name. Different languages translated differently. But still, that's what's kept people who don't believe in the Bible. They say, yeah, you've got the pharaohs all wrong. We've never heard of any of those pharaohs until this year. Until there was a carving found at the um, border of ancient Egypt of a pharaoh who decided to invade to the east, which would be into Israel, which is described in the Bible, and the Bible names him as Hophra. And the Stella says, Hophra invaded to the east. So it begins to match up. We see things like that going on. We see that there was a banquet hall found. Uh, it was found a lot, but it's been excavated a lot this year, connected to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And the banquet hall was, was just rocked and almost totally destroyed by an earthquake in 33 AD. Which would line up with an earthquake that happened when Jesus was crucified? Exact same time, right around that same, exact same time, there was, a, there was an earthquake that rocked Jerusalem. And so there's all these things going on, that things that are like would deal with apologetics that help us as we understand the Bible, things that also help us in so many other areas where we see God at work. There's stuff going on all around the world. That's why Paul in Romans 1 says, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. It started in Jerusalem, and then it went from there to everyone. So if you're scared and you don't know, know what to say and you're not always sure how you're supposed to react in certain situations, remember this. Always remember this. God's at work. It's God who's in charge. It's God who is doing this. And whatever you can say, whatever you can do to help people make the next step spiritually, even if it's just something as simple as inviting them to church, that can be something that God can use. Because he's the one that's working. So that was our first statement. Now I want you to look at another one. Here's another summary statement. Acts 6-7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So this brings to me another question. Who is too far away to know God? Well, here it says a large number of the priests. Those would be the people that would be the furthest away, the most likely not to believe. Is there someone in your life that you say, no way, not that person? I can't reach them. They won't listen. They're not too far away. 
They're not too far away. So who's too far away? No one. Next thing I want you to Acts 8.1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So notice, the church is growing in Jerusalem, and this tells us now that, that they scattered throughout Judea and into Samaria. They left Jerusalem. They were forced out. They were forced out. The church is growing, and usually we think of persecution as a bad thing. But here, they're forced out, and God says, I'm going to use this for good. They need to go to Samaria and tell the Samarians, because I told them to do that. And they seem a little slow, so boot. Right? Sometimes God has to give us a little kick in the rear to get us going. Sometimes God has to give us a shake to wake us up, awake my soul, and to wake us up and say, what's really important in this life? What am I living for? Is this all there is? Just acquire things, eat, drink, retire, die, that's it? I know some people say that is it, but you know what? Your heart is screaming at you, no, there's more than that. Because you have a heart made for God. And notice also who went and who stayed. The apostles stayed, everyone else goes. The pros stayed behind. The clergy And the amateurs went, and it spread like wildfire. It spread like wildfire. And so this this gets me to something else. Who's got the job? Who's got the job? We do. You and me. We're the ones. God has people in your world he wants you to reach out to, in your sphere of influence that he wants you to reach out to. And you probably feel inadequate for some of them. And you are, and I am, and God knows that. But he wants you to take a risk. He wants you to know the joy of impacting people's lives and helping people and loving people because that's what you were made for. And we're the Acts 29 church, all of us, this community is reaching out to those around us, close, Jerusalem, a little further out, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We are responsible to be involved in that. Next summary statement, Acts 9.31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, okay, that area they spread to, they enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. It's an interesting thing here. It grew in numbers. I want you to point out, in the book of, I want to point out to you, the book of Acts, they talk about numbers a lot. In Acts 1-2, they said it was 12. In verse 13 of the same chapter in the upper room, they said it was about 120 followers. 2-41, it says 3,000 people were added. And now here it says it grew in numbers. What does that mean? Somebody counted. And I say this because every once in a while, we hear something that seems kind of spiritual, where it says, you know, the church is not into numbers. We're into quality, not quantity. Okay, that's a little bit of a cop-out. There's truth in that, but it's a little bit of a cop-out. We need to be clear about this because it's not just that it's numbers. Those are people. Those are people. That's what we're talking about. Not abstract numbers. We're talking about human beings, people created in the image of God, people who were lost and now are found. They're saved. That's what's important. We have five children. 
When we would go on vacation, if we came back with three and people said, where's the other two? <laughs> well, we're not into numbers, you know. <laughs> These three are quality. So, you know, whatever. Hope they do well. No, no. If we left with five, we come back with five. Why? Because they're not just numbers, they're people. They matter. So who matters to God? Who matters to God? Everyone. That's an obvious thing. That's why I said, you know, it's not like you're going to go, oh, really, everyone? I never thought that. No, we know that. And that's sometimes the problem. We just know it. And yet we still get mad at that person and we cut that person out of our life and we get angry and we, and we, and we look down upon and we feel like we're better than those people are idiots and I don't understand. Blah, 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 and we do all of that. What are we doing then? We're saying, you don't matter. You don't matter. You don't matter. You hear about things going on in our world and say, well, that's so far away. I don't really care. You don't matter. That's what we're saying. I may not be able to do anything about that situation that's so far away, but it still should matter because those are people. They're not just numbers. And everyone matters to God. Everyone in this room matters to God. Everyone who's driving around right now instead of going to church, they matter to God. Everybody walking into Food Lion, everybody going to the mall, Costco, they matter to God. Everybody who right now is sleeping, whatever they're doing, they matter because every human being on this planet matters. Every one of them is someone that Jesus died for. And so for the church to say, we're just going to focus on us. We don't really worry about all that. Other, we're gonna, that, that is going against what Jesus charged us to do. I don't get it. And so here's the thought. If you can remember tomorrow as you walk through your day and you pass people, just mentally say to yourself, this person matters to God. This person matters to God. Whether you get to talk to him or not, whether you get to interact in any way with him or not, just to keep that in the forefront of your mind, that person in that cubicle matters to God. That person in a classroom, they matter to God. Wherever it is, the people you meet at a grocery store, the people who serve you in different places, they matter to God. And this is a little... You know, here, here you go. I, I'm so ADD. It's like, you know, it's like that with, with the up, you know, I'll be tired. Oh, squirrel. I just, I used to work for tips at a hotel in the Washington, D.C. area. You don't want to, you want to know who the worst tippers were? Religious people. I didn't know they were Christians at the time. I, some of them probably weren't, you know, I just, I, I wasn't a believer, you know, for a part of that. And, and they're just religious people, religious people. They were terrible tippers, but they would always tell me, God bless you. Thanks. <laughs> Maybe he wants to bless me by you giving me a couple bucks here, you know, for taking your luggage up to your room, you skin flint. You know, that's <laughs> now you know what your servers are thinking, right? I just, I've changed from that. I tip well. I tip well because I'm hoping at some point, at some point in the conversation with a waiter or a waitress or someone who's serving me in some sort of a way. And I know for some people it's like, oh, you don't you. I'm sorry, but that's just me. And you, God may lead you differently. Hard for me to imagine. But I just know that hopefully at some point in a conversation, it's going to come out that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. 
or something, right? I go, I go sometimes to Brick House down here. They know now I'm the pastor of this church. They know that because, you know, ca- casual conversation. When I'm, what do you do? I said, well, I'm the pastor of the church right here in, in Port Warwick. And so this is a great place to come. I love coming here. You know, the, I told this guy that, and I watched him go over to the other servers, and he just said, And I was like, oh, no. He probably just went and said, I'm not getting a tip from that bum, right? And so I tip well, because they know I want to be an influence, even in the smallest of ways. And those are small, easy ways. You know, those are small, easy ways. But you have never laid eyes on another human being whom Christ did not die for. And so walking around saying, this person matters to God. This person matters to God, is good for us. It orients us spiritually so that we don't go to sleep. Awake my soul. Next. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of God, and all who believed were appointed for eternal and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The question here then is: what is at stake? And I mentioned this earlier: eternity is at stake. In that passage, it talks about eternal life. And I know what you think. Oh, here goes Bob. Bios, Zoe. We're so tired of that. But it's what we're talking about, right? Two words in the Greek for life. Bios, just living, just existing. Zoe, a life that has meaning and purpose. And you tack that word eternal onto it, and it becomes a life that is eternally full of meaning and purpose. I really believe that. We're going to have purposeful things to do in heaven. My friend George Lamb, who's a surfer, I told him, you're going to visit worlds throughout the solar system that has great waves, and you're going to come back and tell everybody they can go surf them, because that's what you... I made that up. I don't know if that's true, but it gave him hope, so there you go. (laughs) That sounds so cynical. What's at stake? Eternity's at stake. Eternity for every human being that you know and I know. Jesus taught about this. And I know sometimes when it comes to heaven and hell, there have been places, there have been churches, I've been in some, where they are manipulative. And they they push in an undue manner, superficial, simplistic, and that's wrong. But there's a truth here. Eternity is at stake. We are destined for eternity. Either eternity with God or eternity apart from God. Eternity with God, eternal Zoe. Or the most frightening thing that you can imagine. Eternity apart from God. Eternal bios. Eternal existence. Eternity is at stake. This is important. And what we have to offer is something that, that is what every person needs. It's not our ability to argue religious doctrine. It's not our ability to convince people. It's not even our good deeds. It is Jesus who is the hope of the human race. His, the reality of his teaching, the wonder of his teaching, the concreteness of his presence, the hope of the resurrection, the life in the kingdom. This is what we have. So I want you to see this is not a low-stakes deal. This is not something that we, you know, it's just a part of our life. We have, we, have, we have all these parts of our life. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's one part of it. 
It's not about an organization. It's about eternity. It's about eternity. Acts 28, so we're towards the end. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. We think, a lot of theologians think that Paul may have been arrested actually twice. And there's kind of two different situations. This this, This is the second one. And this is the closing of the book of Acts. And, and we don't know exactly what happened. We do know historically Paul was executed. Um, we, have good, we have a good idea exactly where um, the Romans would do this. It was on the major road to the seacoast. And it was at a certain mile marker we have from a historian who mentions the mile marker. And there's a church built there now because of that, that Paul was beheaded there. So we don't know exactly how it's going to turn out here. Luke doesn't tell us. But this is what's going on. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And Paul is a part of that story. The barn doors open, the horse is out. There's no going back. And Paul was put under house arrest with a soldier to guard him. This is how, this is so cool. This is how it worked. If you were on a capital punishment, you would have a soldier chained to you 24 hours a day. Even if you were allowed to live in a house, you were deemed not a threat to to, to anyone, you still had to have a soldier, part of the Praetorian Guard, the cream of the crop in the Roman army. And they would be, they would be chained to you, sometimes in 12-hour shifts, sometimes 8-hour shifts, it could vary. They'd be chained to you. And they thought Paul was their prisoner, and they didn't realize they were his captive audience. So that in Ephesians 4.22, all the saints send you greeting, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He led those guards to the Lord. He led a number of them to the Lord. We have other instances where we we read about this, but he led a number of those guards to the Lord, evidently. They're a part of Caesar's household, and it was growing. They were prisoners of the gospel while they were chained to Paul. So it brings me to the last thing. What have I got to lose? And the answer is nothing. Nothing that's important. If I become a part of the Acts 29 community, the people who are making the kingdom of God happen on this earth, it may demand of me possessions. It may demand of me time. It may demand of me effort. It may demand of me hard work. For thousands, no, for millions of believers in history, it has demanded their life. And it is still happening. So what have I got to lose? If I'm giving my life for the one thing that matters most in all eternity... I cannot lose. And proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's why we're here. And things like embarrassment or fear or success or whatever that may hinder me from serving God, they pale in comparison to eternity. And this is, again, this is not me up here telling you down, you you guys just all feel guilty. No, it's me too. I fear sometimes. I get embarrassed sometimes. I worry about the wrong things sometimes. But the people in Acts chapter 1 through verse through chapter 28 believe the gospel of Jesus Christ was worth dying for. And we have people in Acts 29 throughout history who've been gripped by the same belief. And now it's our turn our turn to join those people we read about 
Peter and Cornelius and Paul and Silas and Barnabas and John and Priscilla and Aquila, people who said, it's worth it, it's worth it. And I want to be a part of that group. I know I'm not adequate to be a part of that group. I know I'm not worthy to be a part of that group, but I want to be a part of that group. I want to help write. I want, with God's power, to help write Acts 29. All of us, that's what God is calling us to do in little ways and in big ways, calling us to be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It it shows us just such a beautiful picture of how you worked in the early church and how it just transformed the world, even as that book, they were the destroyer of the gods. And so, Lord, we ask now that you will give us a vision for each one of us. You give us an idea of what we can do, what part we can have, little part, big part, whatever it is, but that we would be allow ourselves to be challenged by your Spirit, to be challenged, to, to pursue greater things, bigger things, things that matter, for eternity. Lord, help us each in the course of this week as we walk around in our daily life to see people and say, this person matters to God. Father, remind us of that over and over this week and give us the courage to allow it to change us and how we behave in Jesus' name. Amen.